Book Eleven, Chapter Thirteen, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Thirteen. On Saturday, the thirty-first of August, everything in the Rostovs' house seemed topsy-turvy. All the doors were open. All the furniture was being carried out or moved about and the mirrors and pictures had been taken down. There were trunks in the rooms, and hay, wrapping paper and ropes were scattered about. The peasants and house-serfs carrying out the things were treading heavily on the parquet floors. The yard was crowded with peasant carts, some loaded high and already corded up, others still empty. The voices and footsteps of the many servants and of the peasants who had come with the carts resounded as they shouted to one another in the yard and in the house. The Count had been out since morning. The Countess had a headache brought on by all the noise and turmoil, and was lying down in the new sitting-room with a vinegar compress on her head. Petya was not at home. He had gone to visit a friend with whom he meant to obtain a transfer from the militia to the active army. Sonya was in the ballroom looking after the packing of the glass and china. Natasha was sitting on the floor of her dismantled room with dresses, ribbons, and scarves strewn all about her gazing fixedly at the floor and holding in her hands the old ball-dress, already out of fashion, which she had worn at her first Petersburg ball. Natasha was ashamed of doing nothing when everyone else was so busy, and several times that morning had tried to set to work, but her heart was not in it, and she could not and did not know how to do anything except with all her heart and all her might. For a while she had stood beside Sonia while the china was being packed, and tried to help, but soon gave it up and went to her room to pack her own things. At first she found it amusing to give away dresses and ribbons to the maids, but when that was done and what was left had still to be packed she found it dull. "'Dunyasha, you pack. You will, won't you, dear?' And when Dunyasha willingly promised to do it all for her, Natasha sat down on the floor, took her old ball-dress, and fell into a reverie quite unrelated to what ought to have occupied her thoughts now. She was roused from her reverie by the talk of the maids in the next room, which was theirs, and by the sound of their hurried footsteps going to the back porch. Natasha got up and looked out of the window. An enormously long row of carts full of wounded men had stopped in the street. The housekeeper, the old nurse, the cooks, coachmen, maids, footmen, postilions, and scullions stood at the gate, staring at the wounded. Natasha, throwing a clean pocket-handkerchief over her hair and holding an end of it in each hand, went out into the street. The former housekeeper, old Mavra Kuzminichna, had stepped out of the crowd by the gate, gone up to a cart with a hood constructed of bast mats, and was speaking to a pale young officer who lay inside. Natasha moved a few steps forward and stopped shyly, still holding her handkerchief, and listened to what the housekeeper was saying. "'Then you have nobody in Moscow?' she was saying. "'You would be more comfortable somewhere in a house, in ours, for instance. The family are leaving.' "'I don't know if it would be allowed,' replied the officer in a weak voice. "'Here is our commanding officer. Ask him.' and he pointed to a stout major who was walking back along the street past the row of carts. Natasha glanced with frightened eyes at the face of the wounded officer and at once went to meet the major. "'May the wounded men stay in our house?' she asked. 
The Major raised his hand to his cap with a smile. "'Which one do you want, mademoiselle? said he, screwing up his eyes and smiling. Natasha quietly repeated her question, and her face and whole manner were so serious, though she was still holding the ends of her handkerchief, that the Major ceased smiling and after some reflection, as if considering in how far the thing was possible, replied in the affirmative. "'Oh, yes, why not? They may,' he said. With a slight inclination of her head, Natasha stepped back quickly to Mavra Kuzminichna, who stood talking compassionately to the officer. "'They may. He says they may,' whispered Natasha. The cart in which the officer lay was turned into the Rostov's yard, and dozens of carts with wounded men began, at the invitation of the townsfolk, to turn into the yards and to draw up at the entrances of the houses in Povarskaya Street. Natasha was evidently pleased to be dealing with new people outside the ordinary routine of her life. She and Mavra Kuzminichna tried to get as many of the wounded as possible into their yard. "'Your papa must be told, though,' said Mavra Kuzminichna. "'Never mind, never mind. What does it matter? For one day we can move into the drawing-room. They can have all our half of the house.' "'There now, young lady.' You do take things into your head. Even if we put them into the wing, the men's room, or the nurse's room, we must ask permission." "'Well, I'll ask.' Natasha ran into the house and went on tiptoe through the half-open door into the sitting-room, where there was a smell of vinegar and Hoffman's drops. "'Are you asleep, Mama?" "'Oh, what sleep!' said the Countess, waking up just as she was dropping into a doze. "'Mama, darling!' said Natasha, kneeling by her mother and bringing her face close to her mother's. "'I am sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do it again. I woke you up. Mavra Kuzminichna has sent me. They have brought some wounded here, officers. Will you let them come? They have nowhere to go. I knew you'd let them come,' she said quickly, all in one breath. "'What officers? Whom have they brought? I don't understand anything about it,' said the Countess. Natasha laughed, and the Countess, too, smiled slightly. "'I knew you'd give permission. So I'll tell them.' And having kissed her mother, Natasha got up and went to the door. In the hall she met her father, who had returned with bad news. "'We've stayed too long,' said the Count, with involuntary vexation. "'The club is closed, and the police are leaving.' "'Papa, is it all right?' I have invited some of the wounded into the house," said Natasha. "'Of course it is,' he answered absently. "'That's not the point. I beg you not to indulge in trifles now, but to help to pack, and tomorrow we must go, go, go!' And the Count gave a similar order to the major-domo and the servants. At dinner, Petya, having returned home, told them the news he had heard. He said the people had been getting arms in the Kremlin and that, though Rostopchin's broadsheet had said that he would sound a call two or three days in advance, the order had certainly already been given for everyone to go armed to the Three Hills tomorrow, and that there would be a big battle there. The Countess looked with timid horror at her son's eager, excited face as he said this. She realized that, if she said a word about his not going to the battle, she knew he enjoyed the thought of the impending engagement. He would say something about men, honor, and the fatherland something senseless, masculine, and obstinate, 
which there would be no contradicting and her plans would be spoiled. And so, hoping to arrange to leave before then and take Petya with her as their protector and defender, she did not answer him, but after dinner called the Count aside and implored him with tears to take her away quickly, that very night if possible. With a woman's involuntary loving cunning, she, who till then had not shown any alarm, said that she would die of fright if they did not leave that very night. Without any pretense, she was now afraid of everything. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Thirteen Book Eleven, Chapter Fourteen Of War and Peace, Volume Three By Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Fourteen Madame Chausse, who had been out to visit her daughter, increased the Countess' fear still more by telling what she had seen at a spirit eater's in Myasnitsky Street. When returning by that street, she had been unable to pass because of a drunken crowd rioting in front of the shop. She had taken a cab and driven home by a side street, and the cabman had told her that the people were breaking open the barrels at the drink-store, having received orders to do so. After dinner the whole Rostov household set to work with enthusiastic haste packing their belongings and preparing for their departure. The old Count, suddenly setting to work, kept passing from the yard to the house and back again, shouting confused instructions to the hurrying people, and flurrying them still more. Petya directed things in the yard. Sonya, owing to the Count's contradictory orders, lost her head and did not know what to do. The servants ran noisily about the house and yard, shouting and disputing. Natasha, with the ardor characteristic of all she did, suddenly set to work too. At first, her intervention in the business of packing was received skeptically. Everybody expected some prank from her and did not wish to obey her, but she resolutely and passionately demanded obedience, grew angry and nearly cried because they did not heed her and at last succeeded in making them believe her. Her first exploit, which cost her immense effort and established her authority, was the packing of the carpets. The Count had valuable goblin tapestries and Persian carpets in the house. When Natasha set to work, two cases were standing open in the ballroom, one almost full up with crockery, the other with carpets. There was also much china standing on the tables, and still more was being brought in from the storeroom. A third case was needed, and servants had gone to fetch it. "'Sonia, wait a bit. We'll pack everything into these,' said Natasha. "'You can't, miss. We have tried to,' said the butler's assistant. "'No, wait a minute, please.' And Natasha began rapidly taking out of the case dishes and plates wrapped in paper. "'The dishes must go in here among the carpets,' said she. "'Why, it's a mercy if we can get the carpets alone into three cases,' said the butler's assistant. "'Oh, wait, please!' And Natasha began rapidly and deftly sorting out the things. "'These aren't needed,' said she, putting aside some plates of Kiev ware. "'These, yes, these must go among the carpets,' she said, referring to the Saxony china dishes. "'Don't, Natasha. Leave it alone. We'll get it all packed.' urged Sonia reproachfully. "'What a young lady she is!' remarked the major-domo. But Natasha would not give in. 
She turned everything out and began quickly repacking, deciding that the inferior Russian carpets and unnecessary crockery should not be taken at all. When everything had been taken out of the cases, they recommenced packing, and it turned out that when the cheaper things not worth taking had nearly all been rejected, the valuable ones really did all go into the two cases. Only the lid of the case containing the carpets would not shut down. A few more things might have been taken out, but Natasha insisted on having her own way. She packed, repacked, pressed, made the butler's assistant and Petya, whom she had drawn into the business of packing, press on the lid, and made desperate efforts herself. "'That's enough, Natasha,' said Sonia. "'I see you were right, but just take out the top one.' "'I won't!' cried Natasha, with one hand holding back the hair that hung over her perspiring face, while with the other she pressed down the carpets. "'Now press, Petya! Press, Vasilich! Press hard!' she cried. The carpets yielded and the lid closed. Natasha, clapping her hands, screamed with delight and tears fell from her eyes. But this only lasted a moment. She at once set to work afresh, and they now trusted her completely. The Count was not angry even when they told him that Natasha had countermanded an order of his, and the servants now came to her to ask whether a cart was sufficiently loaded and whether it might be corded up. Thanks to Natasha's directions the work now went on expeditiously, unnecessary things were left and the most valuable packed as compactly as possible. But hard as they all worked till quite late that night, they could not get everything packed. The Countess had fallen asleep, and the Count, having put off their departure till next morning, went to bed. Sonia and Natasha slept in the sitting-room without undressing. That night another wounded man was driven down the Povarskaya, and Mavra Kuzminichna, who was standing at the gate, had him brought into the Rostovs' yard. Mavra Kuzminichna concluded that he was a very important man. He was being conveyed in a caleche with a raised hood, and was quite covered by an apron. On the box beside the driver sat a venerable old attendant. A doctor and two soldiers followed the carriage in a cart. "'Please, come in here. The masters are going away, and the whole house will be empty,' said the old woman to the old attendant. "'Well, perhaps,' said he with a sigh. "'We don't expect to get him home alive. We have a house of our own in Moscow.' but it's a long way from here, and there's nobody living in it. "'Do us the honour to come in. There's plenty of everything in the master's house. Come in,' said Mavra Kuzminichna. "'Is he very ill?' she asked. The attendant made a hopeless gesture. "'We don't expect to get him home. We must ask the doctor.' And the old servant got down from the box and went up to the cart. "'All right,' said the doctor. The old servant returned to the caleche, looked into it, shook his head disconsolately, told the driver to turn into the yard, and stopped beside Mavra Kuzminichna. "'Oh, Lord Jesus Christ!' she murmured. She invited them to take the wounded man into the house. "'The masters won't object,' she said. But they had to avoid carrying the man upstairs, so they took him into the wing and put him in the room that had been Madame Chose. This wounded man was Prince Andrew Bolkonsky. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Fourteen.
Book Eleven, Chapter Fifteen, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Fifteen. Moscow's last day had come. It was a clear, bright autumn day, a Sunday. The church bells everywhere were ringing for service, just as usual on Sundays. Nobody seemed yet to realize what awaited the city. Only two things indicated the social condition of Moscow—the rabble, that is the poor people, and the price of commodities. An enormous crowd of factory hands, house-serfs and peasants, with whom some officials, seminarists and gentry were mingled, had gone early that morning to the Three Hills. Having waited there for Rostopchin, who did not turn up, they became convinced that Moscow would be surrendered, and then dispersed all about the town to the public houses and cook-shops. Prices, too, that day indicated the state of affairs. The price of weapons, of gold, of carts and horses kept rising, but the value of paper money and city articles kept falling so that by midday there were instances of carters removing valuable goods, such as cloth, and receiving in payment a half of what they carted, while peasant horses were fetching five hundred roubles each, and furniture, mirrors and bronzes were being given away for nothing. In the Rostov's staid, old-fashioned house the dissolution of former conditions of life was but little noticeable. As to the serfs, the only indication was that three out of their huge retinue disappeared during the night, but nothing was stolen. And as to the value of their possessions, the thirty peasant carts that had come in from their estates, and which many people envied, proved to be extremely valuable, and they were offered enormous sums of money for them. Not only were huge sums offered for the horses and carts, but on the previous evening and early in the morning of the first of September, Orderlies and servants sent by wounded officers came to the Rostovs, and wounded men dragged themselves there from the Rostovs and from neighboring houses where they were accommodated, entreating the servants to try to get them a lift out of Moscow. The major-domo to whom these entreaties were addressed, though he was sorry for the wounded, resolutely refused, saying that he dared not even mention the matter to the Count. Pity these wounded men as one might. It was evident that if they were given one cart there would be no reason to refuse another, or all the carts and one's own carriages as well. Thirty carts could not save all the wounded, and in the general catastrophe one could not disregard oneself and one's own family. So thought the major-domo on his master's behalf. On waking up that morning Count Ilya Rostov left his bedroom softly, so as not to wake the Countess, who had fallen asleep only toward morning, and came out to the porch in his lilac silk dressing-gown. In the yard stood the carts ready corded. The carriages were at the front porch. The major-domo stood at the porch talking to an elderly orderly and to a pale young officer with a bandaged arm. On seeing the Count, the major-domo made a significant and stern gesture to them both to go away. "'Well, Vasilich, is everything ready?' asked the Count, and stroking his bald head he looked good-naturedly at the officer and the orderly and nodded to them. He liked to see new faces. "'We can harness at once, Your Excellency.' "'Well, that's right. As soon as the Countess wakes we'll be off, God willing. What is it, gentlemen?' he added, turning to the officer. "'Are you staying in my house?' The officer came nearer 
and suddenly his face flushed crimson. "'Count, be so good as to allow me, for God's sake, to get into some corner of one of your carts. I have nothing here with me. I shall be all right on a loaded cart.' Before the officer had finished speaking, the orderly made the same request on behalf of his master. "'Oh, yes, yes, yes,' said the Count hastily. "'I shall be very pleased, very pleased. Vasilich, you'll see to it. Just unload one or two carts.' "'Well, what of it? Do what's necessary,' said the Count, muttering some indefinite order. But at the same moment, an expression of warm gratitude on the officer's face had already sealed the order. The Count looked around him. In the yard, at the gates, at the window of the wings, wounded officers and their orderlies were to be seen. They were all looking at the Count and moving toward the porch. "'Please step into the gallery, Your Excellency,' said the Major-Domo. "'What are your orders about the pictures?' The Count went into the house with him, repeating his order not to refuse the wounded who asked for a lift. "'Well, never mind. Some of the things can be unloaded.' he added in a soft, confidential voice, as though afraid of being overheard. At nine o'clock the Countess woke up, and Matrena Timofeyevna, who had been her lady's maid before her marriage, and now performed a sort of chief gendarme's duty for her, came to say that Madame Chausse was much offended, and the young lady's summer dresses could not be left behind. On inquiry the Countess learned that Madame Chausse was offended because her trunk had been taken down from its cart, and all the loads were being uncorded and the luggage taken out of the carts, to make room for wounded men whom the Count, in the simplicity of his heart, had ordered that they should take with them. The Countess sent for her husband. "'What is this, my dear? I hear that the luggage is being unloaded.' "'You know, love, I wanted to tell you—' Countess, dear, an officer came to me to ask for a few carts for the wounded. After all, ours are things that can be bought, but think what being left behind means to them. Really, now, in our own yard. We ask them in ourselves, and there are officers among them. You know, I think, my dear, let them be taken. Where's the hurry?" The Count spoke timidly, as he always did when talking of money matters. The Countess was accustomed to this tone as a precursor of news of something detrimental to the children's interests, such as the building of a new gallery or conservatory, the inauguration of a private theatre or an orchestra. She was accustomed always to oppose anything announced in that timid tone, and considered it her duty to do so. She assumed her dolefully submissive manner and said to her husband, "'Listen to me, Count.' You have managed matters so that we are getting nothing for the house, and now you wish to throw away all our—all the children's property. You said yourself that we have a hundred thousand roubles' worth of things in the house. I don't consent, my dear, I don't. Do as you please. It's the government's business to look after the wounded, they know that. Look at the Lepukins opposite. They cleared out everything two days ago. That's what other people do. It's only we who are such fools. If you have no pity on me, have some for the children." Flourishing his arms in despair, the Count left the room without replying. "'Papa, what are you doing that for?' asked Natasha, who had followed him into her mother's room. "'Nothing. What business is it of yours?' muttered the Count angrily. "'But I heard,' said Natasha. 
Why does Mama object? What business is it of yours? cried the Count. Natasha stepped up to the window and pondered. Papa, here's Berg coming to see us, said she, looking out of the window. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Fifteen Book Eleven, Chapter Sixteen of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Sixteen. Berg, the Rostov son-in-law, was already a colonel wearing the orders of Vladimir and Anna, and he still filled the quiet and agreeable post of assistant to the head of the staff of the assistant commander of the first division of the second army. On the first of September he had come to Moscow from the army. He had nothing to do in Moscow, but he had noticed that everyone in the army was asking for leave to visit Moscow and had something to do there, so he considered it necessary to ask for leave of absence for family and domestic reasons. Berg drove up to his father-in-law's house in his spruce little trap with a pair of sleek roans, exactly like those of a certain prince. He looked attentively at the carts in the yard, and while going up to the porch, took out a clean pocket-handkerchief and tied a knot in it. From the anteroom, Berg ran with smooth though impatient steps into the drawing-room, where he embraced the Count, kissed the hands of Natasha and Sonia, and hastened to inquire after Mama's health. "'Health? At a time like this?' said the Count. "'Come, tell us the news. Is the army retreating, or will there be another battle?' God Almighty alone can decide the fate of our fatherland, Papa," said Berg. The army is burning with the spirit of heroism, and the leaders, so to say, have now assembled in council. No one knows what is coming. But in general I can tell you, Papa, that such a heroic spirit, the truly antique valor of the Russian army, which they—which it, he corrected himself, has shown or displayed in the battle of the twenty-sixth there are no words worthy to do it justice. I tell you, Papa—he smote himself on the breast as a general he had heard speaking had done, but Berg did it a trifle late, for he should have struck his breast at the words, Russian army—I tell you frankly that we the commanders, far from having to urge the men on or anything of that kind, could hardly restrain those—those—yes, those exploits of antique valor—he went on rapidly. General Barclay de Tolly risked his life everywhere at the head of the troops, I can assure you. Our corps was stationed on a hillside. You can imagine." And Berg related all that he remembered of the various tales he had heard those days. Natasha watched him with an intent gaze that confused him, as if she were trying to find in his face the answer to some question. Altogether such heroism as was displayed by the Russian warriors cannot be imagined or adequately praised," said Berg, glancing round at Natasha, and, as if anxious to conciliate her, replying to her intent look with a smile. "'Russia is not in Moscow. She lives in the hearts of her sons. Isn't it so, Papa?' said he. Just then the Countess came in from the sitting-room with a weary and dissatisfied expression. Berg hurriedly jumped up, kissed her hand, asked about her health, and, swaying his head from side to side to express sympathy, remained standing beside her. "'Yes, Mama, I tell you sincerely that these are hard and sad times for every Russian. 
but why are you so anxious? You have still time to get away." "'I can't think what the servants are about,' said the Countess, turning to her husband. "'I have just been told that nothing is ready yet. Somebody, after all, must see to things. One misses Mitenka at such times. There won't be any end to it.' The Count was about to say something, but evidently restrained himself. He got up from his chair and went to the door. At that moment Berg drew out his handkerchief as if to blow his nose, and seeing the knot in it, pondered, shaking his head sadly and significantly. "'And I have a great favor to ask of you, Papa,' said he. "'Hm?' said the Count, and stopped. "'I was driving past Yusupov's house just now,' said Berg with a laugh, "'when the steward, a man I know, ran out and asked me whether I wouldn't buy something. I went in out of curiosity, you know, and there is a small chiffonier and a dressing-table. You know how dear Vera wanted a chiffonier like that, and how we had a dispute about it." At the mention of the chiffonier and dressing-table, Berg involuntarily changed his tone to one of pleasure at his admirable domestic arrangements. "'And it's such a beauty! It pulls out and has a secret English drawer, you know, and dear Vera has long wanted one. I wish to give her a surprise, you see. I saw so many of those peasant carts in your yard. Please, let me have one. I will pay the man well, and—the Count frowned and coughed. Ask the Countess. I don't give orders. If it's inconvenient, please don't, said Berg. Only I so wanted it, for dear Vera's sake. Oh, go to the devil, all of you! To the devil, the devil, the devil! cried the old Count. My head's in a whirl! And he left the room. The Countess began to cry. "'Yes, Mama, yes, these are very hard times,' said Berg. Natasha left the room with her father, and, as if finding it difficult to reach some decision, first followed him and then ran downstairs. Petya was in the porch, engaged in giving out weapons to the servants who were to leave Moscow. The loaded carts were still standing in the yard. Two of them had been uncorded, and a wounded officer was climbing into one of them, helped by an orderly. "'Do you know what it's about?' Petya asked Natasha. She understood that he meant what were their parents quarreling about. She did not answer. "'It's because Papa wanted to give up all the carts to the wounded,' said Petya. "'Vasilich told me. I consider—I consider—' Natasha suddenly almost shouted, turning her angry face to Petya. "'I consider it so horrid, so abominable, so—I don't know what. Are we despicable Germans?' Her throat quivered with convulsive sobs, and afraid of weakening and letting the force of her anger run to waste, she turned and rushed headlong up the stairs. Berg was sitting beside the Countess, consoling her, with the respectful attention of a relative. The Count, pipe in hand, was pacing up and down the room, when Natasha, her face distorted by anger, burst in like a tempest and approached her mother with rapid steps. "'It's horrid! It's abominable!' she screamed. "'You can't possibly have ordered it!' Berg and the Countess looked at her, perplexed and frightened. The Count stood still at the window and listened. "'Mama, it's impossible! See what is going on in the yard!' she cried. They will be left. What's the matter with you? Who are they? What do you want? Why the wounded? It's impossible, Mama. It's monstrous. 
No, Mama, darling, it's not the thing. Please forgive me, darling. Mama, what does it matter what we take away? Only look what is going on in the yard. Mama, it's impossible." The Count stood by the window and listened without turning round. Suddenly he sniffed and put his face closer to the window. The Countess glanced at her daughter, saw her face full of shame for her mother, saw her agitation, and understood why her husband did not turn to look at her now, and she glanced round quite disconcerted. "'Oh, do as you like. Am I hindering anyone?' she said, not surrendering at once. "'Mama, darling, forgive me.' But the Countess pushed her daughter away and went up to her husband. "'My dear, you order what is right. You know I don't understand about it,' said she, dropping her eyes shamefacedly. "'The eggs, the eggs are teaching the hen,' muttered the Count through tears of joy, and he embraced his wife, who was glad to hide her look of shame on his breast. "'Papa! Mama! May I see to it? May I?' asked Natasha. "'We will still take all the most necessary things.' The Count nodded affirmatively, and Natasha, at the rapid pace at which he used to run when playing at tag, ran through the ballroom to the anteroom and downstairs into the yard. The servants gathered round Natasha, but could not believe the strange order she brought them, until the Count himself, in his wife's name, confirmed the order to give up all the carts to the wounded and take the trunks to the storerooms. When they understood that order, the servants set to work at this new task with pleasure and zeal. It no longer seemed strange to them, but on the contrary, it seemed the only thing that could be done. Just as a quarter of an hour before, it had not seemed strange to anyone that the wounded should be left behind and the goods carted away, but that had seemed the only thing to do. The whole household, as if to atone for not having done it sooner, set eagerly to work at the new task of placing the wounded in the carts. The wounded dragged themselves out of their rooms and stood with pale but happy faces round the carts. The news that carts were to be had spread to the neighboring houses, from which wounded men began to come into the Rostovs' yard. Many of the wounded asked them not to unload the carts, but only to let them sit on top of the things. But the work of unloading, once started, could not be arrested. It seemed not to matter whether all or only half the things were left behind. Cases full of china, bronzes, pictures and mirrors that had been so carefully packed the night before now lay about the yard, and still they went on searching for and finding possibilities of unloading this or that and letting the wounded have another and yet another cart. "'We can take four more men,' said the steward. "'They can have my trap, or else what is to become of them?' "'Let them have my wardrobe-cart,' said the countess. "'Dunyasha can go with me in the carriage.' They unloaded the wardrobe-cart and sent it to take wounded men from a house two doors off. The whole household, servants included, was bright and animated. Natasha was in a state of rapturous excitement such as she had not known for a long time. "'What could we fasten this on to?' asked the servants, trying to fix a trunk on the narrow footboard behind a carriage. "'We must keep at least one cart.' "'What's in it?' asked Natasha. "'The Count's books.' "'Leave it.' Vasilich will put it away. It's not wanted." The phaeton was full of people, and there was a doubt as to where Count Peter could sit. "'On the box. You'll sit on the box, won't you, Petya?' cried Natasha. Sonya, too, was busy all this time, but the aim of her efforts was quite different from Natasha's. 
She was putting away the things that had to be left behind and making a list of them as the Countess wished, and she tried to get as much taken away with them as possible. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Sixteen Book Eleven, Chapter Seventeen of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Seventeen. Before two o'clock in the afternoon, the Rostovs' four carriages, packed full and with the horses harnessed, stood at the front door. One by one, the carts with the wounded had moved out of the yard. The calèche in which Prince Andrew was being taken attracted Sonia's attention as it passed the front porch. With the help of a maid, she was arranging a seat for the Countess in the huge high coach that stood at the entrance. "'Whose calèche is that?' she inquired, leaning out of the carriage window. "'Why, didn't you know, miss?' replied the maid. "'The wounded Prince. He spent the night in our house and is going with us.' "'But who is it? What's his name?' It's our intended that was Prince Bolkonsky himself. They say he is dying," replied the maid with a sigh. Sonya jumped out of the coach and ran to the Countess. The Countess, tired out and already dressed in shawl and bonnet for her journey, was pacing up and down the drawing-room, waiting for the household to assemble for the usual silent prayer with closed doors before starting. Natasha was not in the room. Mama said Sonya. Prince Andrew is here, mortally wounded. He is going with us." The Countess opened her eyes in dismay and, seizing Sonia's arm, glanced around. "'Natasha,' she murmured. At that moment this news had only one significance for both of them. They knew their Natasha, and alarm as to what would happen if she heard this news stifled all sympathy for the man they both liked. "'Natasha does not know yet, but he is going with us.' said Sonia. "'You say he is dying?' Sonia nodded. The Countess put her arms around Sonia and began to cry. "'The ways of God are past finding out,' she thought, feeling that the Almighty Hand, hitherto unseen, was becoming manifest in all that was now taking place. "'Well, Mama, everything is ready. What's the matter?' asked Natasha, as with animated face she ran into the room. Nothing, answered the Countess. If everything is ready, let us start. And the Countess bent over her reticule to hide her agitated face. Sonia embraced Natasha and kissed her. Natasha looked at her inquiringly. What is it? What has happened? Nothing. No. Is it something very bad for me? What is it? persisted Natasha with her quick intuition. Sonia sighed and made no reply. The Count, Petya, Madame Chos, Mavra Kuzminichna, and Vasilich came into the drawing-room, and having closed the doors, they all sat down and remained for some moments silently seated without looking at one another. The Count was the first to rise, and with a loud sigh crossed himself before the icon. All the others did the same. Then the Count embraced Mavra Kuzminichna and Vasilich, who were to remain in Moscow and while they caught at his hand and kissed his shoulder, he patted their backs lightly with some vaguely affectionate and comforting words. 
the Countess went into the oratory, and there Sonia found her on her knees before the icons that had been left here and there hanging on the wall. The most precious ones, with which some family tradition was connected, were being taken with them. In the porch and in the yard, the men whom Petya had armed with swords and daggers, with trousers tucked inside their high boots, and with belts and girdles tightened, were taking leave of those remaining behind. As is always the case at a departure, much had been forgotten or put in the wrong place, and for a long time two men-servants stood one on each side of the open door and the carriage-steps waiting to help the Countess in, while maids rushed with cushions and bundles from the house to the carriages, the caleche, the phaeton, and back again. "'They always will forget everything,' said the Countess. "'Don't you know I can't sit like that?' And Dunyasha, with clenched teeth, without replying but with an aggrieved look on her face, hastily got into the coach to rearrange the seat. "'Oh, those servants!' said the Count, swaying his head. Ephim, the old coachman, who was the only one the Countess trusted to drive her, sat perched up high on the box, and did not so much as glance round at what was going on behind him. From thirty years' experience, he knew it would be some time yet before the order, Be off in God's name, would be given him, and he knew that, even when it was said, he would be stopped once or twice more while they sent back to fetch something that had been forgotten, and even after that he would again be stopped, and the Countess herself would lean out of the window and beg him, for the love of heaven, to drive carefully down the hill. He knew all this, and therefore waited calmly for what would happen with more patience than the horses, especially the near one, the chestnut falcon, who was pawing the ground and champing his bit. At last all were seated, the carriage-steps were folded and pulled up, the door was shut, somebody was sent for a travelling-case, and the countess leaned out and said what she had to say. Then Ephim deliberately doffed his hat and began crossing himself. The postillion and all the other servants did the same. "'Off, in God's name!' said Ephim, putting on his hat. "'Start!' The postillion started the horses. The off-pole-horse tugged at his collar. The high springs creaked, and the body of the coach swayed. The footman sprang onto the box of the moving coach, which jolted as it passed out of the yard onto the uneven roadway. The other vehicles jolted in their turn, and the procession of carriages moved up the street. In the carriages, the caleche and the phaeton, all crossed themselves as they passed the church opposite the house. Those who were to remain in Moscow walked on either side of the vehicle, seeing the travellers off. Rarely had Natasha experienced so joyful a feeling as now, sitting in the carriage beside the Countess and gazing at the slowly receding walls of forsaken, agitated Moscow. Occasionally she leaned out of the carriage window and looked back and then forward at the long train of wounded in front of them. Almost at the head of the line she could see the raised hood of Prince Andrew's caleche. She did not know who was in it, but each time she looked at the procession her eyes sought that caleche. She knew it was right in front. In Kudrino, from the Nikitsky, Presnya, and Ponovinsk streets, came several other trains of vehicles similar to the Rostovs, and as they passed along the Sadovaya street the carriages and carts formed two rows abreast. As they were going round the Sukarev water-tower, Natasha, who was inquisitively and alertly scrutinizing the people driving or walking past, suddenly cried out in joyful surprise. 
Dear me! Mama! Sonia! Look! It's he!" Who? Who? Look! Yes, on my word, it's Bezukhov," said Natasha, putting her head out of the carriage and staring at a tall, stout man in a coachman's long coat, who from his manner of walking and moving was evidently a gentleman in disguise, and who was passing under the arch of the Sukharov Tower accompanied by a small, sallow-faced, beardless old man in a frieze coat. Yes, it really is Bezukhov in a coachman's coat, with a queer-looking old boy. Really, said Natasha, look, look! No, it's not he. How can you talk such nonsense? Mama! screamed Natasha. I'll stake my head it's he. I assure you. Stop! Stop! she cried to the coachman. But the coachman could not stop, for from the Mashansky Street came more carts and carriages, and the Rostovs were being shouted at to move on and not block the way. In fact, however, though now much farther off than before, the Rostovs all saw Pierre, or someone extraordinarily like him, in a coachman's coat, going down the street with head bent and a serious face beside a small beardless old man who looked like a footman. That old man noticed a face thrust out of the carriage window gazing at them, and respectfully touching Pierre's elbow, said something to him and pointed to the carriage. Pierre, evidently engrossed in thought, could not at first understand him. At length, when he had understood and looked in the direction the old man indicated, he recognized Natasha, and following his first impulse, stepped instantly and rapidly toward the coach. But having taken a dozen steps, he seemed to remember something and stopped. Natasha's face, leaning out of the window, beamed with quizzical kindliness. "'Peter Kirillovich, come here! We have recognized you! This is wonderful!' she cried, holding out her hand to him. "'What are you doing? Why are you like this?' Pierre took her outstretched hand and kissed it awkwardly, as he walked along beside her while the coach still moved on. "'What is the matter, Count?' asked the Countess in a surprised and commiserating tone. "'What? What? Why? Don't ask me,' said Pierre, and looked round at Natasha, whose radiant, happy expression, of which he was conscious without looking at her, filled him with enchantment. "'Are you remaining in Moscow, then?' Pierre hesitated. "'In Moscow?' he said in a questioning tone. "'Yes, in Moscow. Good-bye.' "'Ah, if only I were a man, I'd certainly stay with you.' How splendid!" said Natasha. Mama, if you'll let me, I'll stay. Pierre glanced absently at Natasha and was about to say something, but the countess interrupted him. You were at the battle, we heard. Yes, I was, Pierre answered. There will be another battle tomorrow, he began, but Natasha interrupted him. But what is the matter with you, Count? You are not like yourself. Oh, don't ask me, don't ask me. I don't know myself. Tomorrow, but no. Good-bye, good-bye, he muttered. It's an awful time, and dropping behind the carriage, he stepped onto the pavement. Natasha continued to lean out of the window for a long time, beaming at him with her kindly, slightly quizzical, happy smile. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Seventeen Book Eleven, Chapter Eighteen 
of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Eighteen. For the last two days, ever since leaving home, Pierre had been living in the empty house of his deceased benefactor Bazdeev. This is how it happened. When he woke up on the morning after his return to Moscow and his interview with Count Rostopchin, he could not for some time make out where he was and what was expected of him. When he was informed that among others awaiting him in his reception room there was a Frenchman who had brought a letter from his wife, the Countess Hélène, he felt suddenly overcome by that sense of confusion and hopelessness to which he was apt to succumb. He felt that everything was now at an end all was in confusion and crumbling to pieces, that nobody was right or wrong, the future held nothing, and there was no escape from this position. Smiling unnaturally and muttering to himself, he first sat down on the sofa in an attitude of despair, then rose, went to the door of the reception-room, and peeped through the crack, returned flourishing his arms, and took up a book. His major-domo came in a second time to say that the Frenchman who had brought the letter from the Countess was very anxious to see him, if only for a minute, and that someone from Bazdeyev's widow had called to ask Pierre to take charge of her husband's books, as she herself was leaving for the country. "'Oh, yes, in a minute. Wait. Or no, no, of course. Go and say I will come directly,' Pierre replied to the major-domo. But as soon as the man had left the room, Pierre took up his hat which was lying on the table and went out of his study by the other door. There was no one in the passage. He went along the whole length of this passage to the stairs, and frowning and rubbing his forehead with both hands, went down as far as the first landing. The hall-porter was standing at the front door. From the landing where Pierre stood there was a second staircase leading to the back entrance. He went down that staircase and out into the yard. No one had seen him. But there were some carriages waiting, and as soon as Pierre stepped out of the gate the coachman and the yard-porter noticed him and raised their caps to him. When he felt he was being looked at he behaved like an ostrich which hides its head in a bush, in order not to be seen. He hung his head and, quickening his pace, went down the street. Of all the affairs awaiting Pierre that day the sorting of Joseph Bazdeyev's books and papers appeared to him the most necessary. He hired the first cab he met and told the driver to go to the Patriarch's Ponds, where the widow Bazdeo's house was. Continually turning round to look at the rows of loaded carts that were making their way from all sides out of Moscow, and balancing his bulky body so as not to slip out of the ramshackle old vehicle, Pierre, experiencing the joyful feeling of a boy escaping from school, began to talk to his driver. The man told him that arms were being distributed that day at the Kremlin, and that tomorrow every one would be sent out beyond the Three Hills Gates and a great battle would be fought there. Having reached the Patriarch's Ponds, Pierre found the Bazdeyev's house, where he had not been for a long time past. He went up to the gate. Gerasim, that sallow, beardless old man Pierre had seen at Torzhok five years before with Joseph Bazdeyev, came out in answer to his knock. At home, asked Pierre. Owing to the present state of things, Sofia Danilovna has gone to the Torzhok estate with the children, Your Excellency. I will come in all the same. I have to look through the books, said Pierre. Be so good as to step in. 
Makar Alexeyevich, the brother of my late master, may the kingdom of heaven be his, has remained here, but he is in a weak state, as you know," said the old servant. Pierre knew that Makar Alexeyevich was Joseph Baldeyev's half-insane brother and a hard drinker. "'Yes, yes, I know. Let us go in,' said Pierre, and entered the house. A tall, bald-headed old man with a red nose, wearing a dressing-gown and with galoshes on his bare feet, stood in the anteroom. On seeing Pierre, he muttered something angrily and went away along the passage. "'He was a very clever man, but has now grown quite feeble, as your honour sees,' said Gerasim. "'Will you step into the study?' Pierre nodded. "'As it was sealed up, so it has remained. But Sofia Danilovna gave orders that, if anyone should come from you, they were to have the books." Pierre went into that gloomy study which he had entered with such trepidation in his benefactor's lifetime. The room, dusty and untouched since the death of Joseph Mazdeev, was now even gloomier. Gerasim opened one of the shutters and left the room on tiptoe. Pierre went round the study, approached the cupboard in which the manuscripts were kept, and took out what had once been one of the most important, the Holy of Holies of the Order. This was the authentic Scotch Acts, with Baldeyev's notes and explanations. He sat down at the dusty writing-table, and having laid the manuscripts before him, opened them out, closed them, finally pushed them away, and resting his head on his hand, sank into meditation. Gerasim looked cautiously into the study several times, and saw Pierre always sitting in the same attitude. More than two hours passed, and Gerasim took the liberty of making a slight noise at the door to attract his attention, but Pierre did not hear him. "'Is the cabman to be discharged, Your Honor?' "'Oh, yes,' said Pierre, rousing himself and rising hurriedly. "'Look here,' he added, taking Gerasim by a button of his coat and looking down at the old man with moist, shining, and ecstatic eyes. "'I say, do you know that there is going to be a battle tomorrow?' "'We heard so,' replied the man. "'I beg you not to tell anyone who I am, and to do what I ask you.' "'Yes, Your Excellency,' replied Gerasim. "'Will you have something to eat?' "'No, but I want something else. I want peasant clothes and a pistol,' said Pierre, unexpectedly blushing. "'Yes, Your Excellency,' said Gerasim, after thinking for a moment. All the rest of that day, Pierre spent alone in his benefactor's study, and Gerasim heard him pacing restlessly from one corner to another and talking to himself. And he spent the night on a bed made up for him there. Gerasim, being a servant who in his time had seen many strange things, accepted Pierre's taking up his residence in the house without surprise, and seemed pleased to have someone to wait on. That same evening, without even asking himself what they were wanted for, he procured a coachman's coat and cap for Pierre, and promised to get him the pistol next day. Makar Alexeyevich came twice that evening shuffling along in his galoshes as far as the door, and stopped and looked ingratiatingly at Pierre. But as soon as Pierre turned toward him, he wrapped his dressing-gown around him with a shamefaced and angry look and hurried away. It was when Pierre, wearing the coachman's coat which Gerasim had procured for him and had disinfected by steam, was on his way with the old man to buy the pistol at the Sukarev market that he met the Rostovs. End of Book 11, Chapter 18
Book Eleven, Chapter Nineteen, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Nineteen. Kutuzov's order to retreat through Moscow to the Ryazan Road was issued at night on the first of September. The first troops started at once, and during the night they marched slowly and steadily without hurry. At daybreak, however, those nearing the town at the Dorogomilov Bridge saw ahead of them masses of soldiers crowding and hurrying across the bridge, ascending on the opposite side and blocking the streets and alleys, while endless masses of troops were bearing down on them from behind, and an unreasoning hurry and alarm overcame them. They all rushed forward to the bridge, onto it, and to the fords and the boats. Kutuzov himself had driven round by side streets to the other side of Moscow. By ten o'clock in the morning of the second of September, only the rear-guard remained in the Dorogomilov suburb, where they had ample room. The main army was on the other side of Moscow, or beyond it. At that very time, at ten in the morning of the second of September, Napoleon was standing among his troops on the Pokloni Hill looking at the panorama spread out before him. From the twenty-sixth of August to the second of September, that is, from the Battle of Borodino to the entry of the French into Moscow, during the whole of that agitating, memorable week, there had been the extraordinary autumn weather that always comes as a surprise, when the sun hangs low and gives more heat than in spring, when everything shines so brightly in the rare clear atmosphere that the eyes smart, when the lungs are strengthened and refreshed by inhaling the aromatic autumn air, when even the nights are warm and when in those dark warm nights golden stars startle and delight us continually by falling from the sky. At ten in the morning of the second of September this weather still held. The brightness of the morning was magical. Moscow, seen from the Pakloni Hill, lay spaciously spread out, with her river, her gardens, and her churches, and she seemed to be living her usual life, her cupolas glittering like stars in the sunlight. The view of the strange city, with its peculiar architecture, such as he had never seen before, filled Napoleon with the rather envious and uneasy curiosity men feel when they see an alien form of life that has no knowledge of them. This city was evidently living with the full force of its own life. By the indefinite signs which, even at a distance, distinguish a living body from a dead one, Napoleon from the Pokloni Hill perceived the throb of life in the town, and felt, as it were, the breathing of that great and beautiful body. Every Russian looking at Moscow feels her to be a mother. Every foreigner who sees her, even if ignorant of her significance as the mother city, must feel her feminine character, and Napoleon felt it. Cette ville asiatique au innombrable église, Moscow la sang. La voilà dont enfin cette fameuse ville, il était temps. That Asiatic city of the innumerable churches, holy Moscow. Here it is then, at last, that famous city. It was high time, said he, and dismounting, he ordered a plan of Moscow to be spread out before him, and summoned Le Lorne de Ville, the interpreter. A town captured by the enemy is like a maid who has lost her honor thought he. He had said so to Tuchkov at Smolensk. From that point of view, 
he gazed at the oriental beauty he had not seen before. It seemed strange to him that his long-felt wish, which had seemed unattainable, had at last been realized. In the clear morning light he gazed now at the city and now at the plan, considering its details, and the assurance of possessing it agitated and awed him. But could it be otherwise? he thought. Here is this capital at my feet. Where is Alexander now, and of what is he thinking? A strange, beautiful, and majestic city! And a strange and majestic moment! In what light must I appear to them? thought he, thinking of his troops. Here she is, the reward for all those faint-hearted men, he reflected, glancing at those near him and at the troops who were approaching and forming up. One word from me, one movement of my hand, and that ancient capital of the Tsars would perish. But my clemency is always ready to descend upon the vanquished. I must be magnanimous and truly great. But no, it can't be true that I am in Moscow, he suddenly thought. Yet here she is, lying at my feet, with her golden domes and crosses scintillating and twinkling in the sunshine. But I shall spare her. On the ancient monuments of barbarism and despotism I will inscribe great words of justice and mercy. It is just this which Alexander will feel most painfully. I know him." It seemed to Napoleon that the chief import of what was taking place lay in the personal struggle between himself and Alexander. From the height of the Kremlin, yes, there is the Kremlin, yes, I will give them just laws. I will teach them the meaning of true civilization. I will make generations of boyars remember their conqueror with love. I will tell the deputation that I did not and do not desire war, that I have waged war only against the false policy of their court, that I love and respect Alexander, and that in Moscow I will accept terms of peace worthy of myself and of my people. I do not wish to utilize the fortunes of war to humiliate an honored monarch. Boyars, I will say to them, I do not desire war. I desire the peace and welfare of all my subjects. However, I know their presence will inspire me, and I shall speak to them as I always do, clearly, impressively, and majestically. But can it be true that I am in Moscow? Yes, there she lies. les boyars, Bring the boyars to me, said he to his suite. A general with a brilliant suite galloped off at once to fetch the boyars. Two hours passed. Napoleon had lunched and was again standing in the same place on the Pokloni Hill awaiting the deputation. His speech to the boyars had already taken definite shape in his imagination. That speech was full of dignity and greatness as Napoleon understood it. He was himself carried away by the tone of magnanimity he intended to adopt toward Moscow. In his imagination he appointed days for assemblies at the palace of the Tsars, at which Russian notables and his own would mingle. He mentally appointed a governor, one who would win the hearts of the people. Having learned that there were many charitable institutions in Moscow, he mentally decided that he would shower favors on them all. He thought that, as in Africa he had to put on a burnous and sit in a mosque, so in Moscow he must be beneficent like the Tsars. And in order finally to touch the hearts of the Russians, 
and being like all Frenchmen, unable to imagine anything sentimental without a reference to ma chère, ma tendre, ma pauvre mère, my dear, my tender, my poor mother, he decided that he would place an inscription on all these establishments in large letters, This establishment is dedicated to my dear mother. Or, no, it should be simply, Maison de ma mère, house of my mother, he concluded. But am I really in Moscow? Yes, here it lies before me. But why is the deputation from the city so long in appearing? he wondered. Meanwhile, an agitated consultation was being carried on in whispers among his generals and marshals at the rear of his suite. Those sent to fetch the deputation had returned with the news that Moscow was empty, that everyone had left it. The face of those who were not conferring together were pale and perturbed. They were not alarmed by the fact that Moscow had been abandoned by its inhabitants, grave as that fact seemed, but by the question how to tell the Emperor, without putting him in the terrible position of appearing ridiculous, that he had been awaiting the boyars so long in vain, that there were drunken mobs left in Moscow, but no one else. Some said that a deputation of some sort must be scraped together. Others disputed that opinion, and maintained that the emperor should first be carefully and skillfully prepared, and then told the truth. "'He will have to be told all the same,' said some gentleman of the suite. "'But, gentlemen—' The position was the more awkward because the emperor, meditating upon his magnanimous plans, was pacing patiently up and down before the outspread map, occasionally glancing along the road to Moscow from under his lifted hand with a bright and proud smile. "'But it's impossible,' declared the gentlemen of the suite, shrugging their shoulders but not venturing to utter the implied word, le ridicule. At last the Emperor, tired of futile expectation, his actor's instinct suggesting to him that the sublime moment having been too long drawn out was beginning to lose its sublimity, gave a sign with his hand. A single report of a signaling-gun followed, and the troops, who were already spread out on different sides of Moscow, moved into the city through the Ver, Kaluga, and Orgomilov gates. Faster and faster, vying with one another, they moved at the double or at a trot, vanishing amid the clouds of dust they raised and making the air ring with a deafening roar of mingling shouts. Drawn on by the movement of his troops, Napoleon rode with them as far as the Dorogomilov gate, but there again stopped and dismounting from his horse, paced for a long time by the Kamarkoleski rampart, awaiting the deputation. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Nineteen Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Of War and Peace, Volume Three By Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty. Meanwhile, Moscow was empty. There were still people in it, perhaps a fiftieth part of its former inhabitants had remained, but it was empty. It was empty in the sense that a dying queenless hive is empty. In a queenless hive, no life is left, though to a superficial glance it seems as much alive as other hives. The bees circle round a queenless hive in the hot beams of the midday sun as gaily as around the living hives. 
From a distance it smells of honey like the others, and bees fly in and out in the same way. But one has only to observe that hive to realize that there is no longer any life in it. The bees do not fly in the same way. The smell and the sound that meet the beekeeper are not the same. To the beekeeper's tap on the wall of the sick hive, instead of the former instant unanimous humming of tens of thousands of bees with their abdomens threateningly compressed, and producing by the rapid vibration of their wings an aerial living sound, the only reply is a disconnected buzzing from different parts of the deserted hive. From the alighting board, instead of the former spirituous fragrant smell of honey and venom, and the warm whiffs of crowded life, comes an odor of emptiness and decay mingling with the smell of honey. There are no longer sentinels sounding the alarm with their abdomens raised, and ready to die in defense of the hive. There is no longer the measured quiet sound of throbbing activity, like the sound of boiling water, but diverse discordant sounds of disorder. In and out of the hive long black robber bees smeared with honey fly timidly and shiftily. They do not sting, but crawl away from danger. Formerly only bees laden with honey flew into the hive, and they flew out empty. Now they fly out laden. The beekeeper opens the lower part of the hive and peers in. Instead of black, glossy bees, tamed by toil, clinging to one another's legs or drawing out the wax with a ceaseless hum of labor, that used to hang in long clusters down to the floor of the hive, drowsy, shriveled bees crawl about separately in various directions, on the floor and walls of the hive. Instead of a neatly glued floor, swept by the bees with the fanning of their wings, there is a floor littered with bits of wax, excrement, dying bees scarcely moving their legs, and dead ones that have not been cleared away. The beekeeper opens the upper part of the hive and examines the super. Instead of serried rows of bees sealing up every gap in the combs and keeping the brood warm, he sees the skillful complex structure of the combs, but no longer in their former state of purity. All is neglected and foul. Black robber bees are swiftly and stealthily prowling about the combs, and the short home bees, shriveled and listless as if they were old, creep slowly about without trying to hinder the robbers, having lost all motive and all sense of life. Drones, bumblebees, wasps, and butterflies knock awkwardly against the walls of the hive in their flight. Here and there, among the cells containing dead brood and honey, an angry buzzing can sometimes be heard. Here and there, a couple of bees, by force of habit and custom, cleaning out the brood cells, with efforts beyond their strength, laboriously drag away a dead bee or bumblebee without knowing why they do it. In another corner, two old bees are languidly fighting, or cleaning themselves, or feeding one another, without themselves knowing whether they do it with friendly or hostile intent. In a third place, a crowd of bees, crushing one another, attack some victim and fight and smother it, and the victim, enfeebled or killed, drops from above slowly and lightly as a feather, among the heap of corpses. The keeper opens the two center partitions to examine the brood cells. In place of the former, close dark circles formed by thousands of bees sitting back to back and guarding the high mystery of generation, he sees hundreds of dull, listless, and sleepy shells of bees. They have almost all died unawares, sitting in the sanctuary they had guarded and which is now no more. They reek of decay and death. 
only a few of them still move, rise, and feebly fly to settle on the enemy's hand, lacking the spirit to die stinging him. The rest are dead and fall as lightly as fish scales. The beekeeper closes the hive, chalks a mark on it, and when he has time, tears out its contents and burns it clean. So, in the same way, Moscow was empty when Napoleon, weary, uneasy, and morose, paced up and down in front of the Kamarkoleski rampart, awaiting what to his mind was a necessary, if but formal, observance of the proprieties, a deputation. In various corners of Moscow there still remained a few people aimlessly moving about, following their old habits and hardly aware of what they were doing. When, with due circumspection, Napoleon was informed that Moscow was empty, he looked angrily at his informant, turned away, and silently continued to walk to and fro. "'My carriage,' he said. He took a seat beside the aide-de-camp on duty and drove into the suburb. "'Moscow deserted,' he said to himself. "'What an incredible event!' He did not drive into the town but put up at an inn in the Dorogomilov suburb. The coup de théâtre had not come off. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty-One Of War and Peace, Volume Three By Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty One. The Russian troops were passing through Moscow from two o'clock at night till two in the afternoon, and bore away with them the wounded and the last of the inhabitants who were leaving. The greatest crush during the movement of the troops took place at the Stone, Moskva, and Yauza bridges. While the troops, dividing into two parts when passing around the Kremlin, were thronging the Moskva and the Stone bridges. A great many soldiers, taking advantage of the stoppage and congestion, turned back from the bridges and slipped stealthily and silently past the church of Vasily the Beatified and under the Borovitsky Gate, back up the hill to the Red Square, where some instinct told them they could easily take things not belonging to them. Crowds of the kind seen at cheap sales filled all the passages and alleys of the bazaar, but there were no dealers with voices of ingratiating affability inviting customers to enter. There were no hawkers, nor the usual motley crowd of female purchasers, but only soldiers, in uniforms and overcoats, though without muskets, entering the bazaar empty-handed and silently making their way out through its passages with bundles. Tradesmen and their assistants, of whom there were but few, moved about among the soldiers quite bewildered. They unlocked their shops and locked them up again, and themselves carried goods away with the help of their assistants. On the square in front of the bazaar were drummers beating the muster-call. But the roll of the drums did not make the looting soldiers run in the direction of the drum as formerly, but made them, on the contrary, run farther away. Among the soldiers in the shops and passages some men were to be seen in grey coats with closely shaven heads. Two officers, one with a scarf over his uniform and mounted on a lean, dark grey horse, the other in an overcoat and on foot stood at the corner of Ilyinka Street, talking. A third officer galloped up to them. "'The general orders them all to be driven out at once, without fail. This is outrageous. Half the men have dispersed.' "'Where are you off to? Where?' 
he shouted to three infantrymen without muskets, who, holding up the skirts of their overcoats, were slipping past them into the bazaar passage. "'Stop, you rascals!' "'But how are you going to stop them?' replied another officer. "'There is no getting them together. The army should push on before the rest bolt, that's all.' "'How can one push on? They are stuck there, wedged on the bridge, and don't move. Should we put a cordon round to prevent the rest from running away?' "'Come, go in there and drive them out!' shouted the senior officer. The officer in the scarf dismounted, called up a drummer, and went with him into the arcade. Some soldiers started running away in a group. A shopkeeper with red pimples on his cheeks near the nose, and a calm, persistent, calculating expression on his plump face, hurriedly and ostentatiously approached the officer, swinging his arms. "'Your Honor,' said he, "'be so good as to protect us. We won't grudge trifles. You are welcome to anything. We shall be delighted. Pray, I'll fetch a piece of cloth at once for such an honorable gentleman, or even two pieces with pleasure. For we feel how it is. But what's all this? Sheer robbery! If you please, could not guards be placed if only to let us close the shop?' Several shopkeepers crowded round the officer. "'Eh, what twaddle!' said one of them, a thin, stern-looking man. "'When one's head is gone, one doesn't weep for one's hair. Take what any of you like.' And flourishing his arm energetically, he turned sideways to the officer. "'It's all very well for you, Ivan Sidorish, to talk,' said the first tradesman angrily. "'Please, step inside, Your Honor.' "'Talk, indeed!' cried the thin one. "'In my three shops here I have a hundred thousand roubles' worth of goods. Can they be saved when the army is gone? Eh, what people! Against God's might our hands can't fight!' "'Come inside, Your Honor,' repeated the tradesman, bowing. The officer stood perplexed, and his face showed indecision. "'It's not my business!' he exclaimed, and strode on quickly down one of the passages. From one open shop came the sound of blows and vituperation, and just as the officer came up to it, a man in a gray coat with a shaven head was flung out violently. This man, bent double, rushed past the tradesman and the officer. The officer pounced on the soldiers who were in the shops, but at that moment fearful screams reached them from the huge crowd on the Moskva bridge, and the officer ran out into the square. "'What is it? What is it?' he asked but his comrade was already galloping off past Vasily the Beatified, in the direction from which the screams came. The officer mounted his horse and rode after him. When he reached the bridge he saw two unlimbered guns, the infantry crossing the bridge, several overturned carts, and frightened and laughing faces among the troops. Beside the cannon a cart was standing to which two horses were harnessed. Four borzois with collars were pressing close to the wheels. The cart was loaded high, and at the very top, beside a child's chair with its legs in the air, sat a peasant woman uttering piercing and desperate shrieks. He was told by his fellow officers that the screams of the crowd and the shrieks of the woman were due to the fact that General Ermolov, coming up to the crowd and learning that officers were dispersing among the shops while crowds of civilians blocked the bridge, had ordered two guns to be unlimbered and made a show of firing at the bridge. The crowd, crushing one another, upsetting carts, and shouting and squeezing desperately, had cleared off the bridge, and the troops were now moving forward. End of Book 11, Chapter 21
Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Two of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Two. Meanwhile, the city itself was deserted. There was hardly anyone in the streets. The gates and shops were all closed. Only here and there, round the taverns, solitary shouts or drunken songs could be heard. Nobody drove through the streets, and footsteps were rarely heard. The Povarskaya was quite still and deserted. The huge courtyard of the Rostovs' house was littered with wisps of hay and with dung from the horses, and not a soul was to be seen there. In the great drawing-room of the house, which had been left with all it contained, were two people. They were the yard-porter Ignat and the page-boy Mishka, Vasilich's grandson, who had stayed in Moscow with his grandfather. Mishka had opened the clavichord and was strumming on it with one finger. The yard-porter, his arms akimbo, stood smiling with satisfaction before the large mirror. "'Isn't it fine, eh, Uncle Ignat?' said the boy, suddenly beginning to strike the keyboard with both hands. "'Only fancy!' answered Ignat, surprised at the broadening grin on his face in the mirror. "'Impudence! Impudence!' they heard behind them the voice of Mavra Kuzminichna, who had entered silently. "'How he's grinning, the fat mug! Is that what you're here for? Nothing's cleared away down there, and Vasilich is worn out. Just you wait a bit!' Ignat left off smiling, adjusted his belt, and went out of the room with meekly downcast eyes. "'Aunt!' I did it gently," said the boy. "'I'll give you something gently, you monkey, you!' cried Mavra Kuzminichna, raising her arm threateningly. "'Go and get the samovar to boil for your grandfather!' Mavra Kuzminichna flicked the dust off the clavichord and closed it, and with a deep sigh left the drawing-room and locked its main door. Going out into the yard, she paused to consider where she should go next—to drink tea in the servant's wing with Vasilich or into the storeroom to put away what still lay about. She heard the sound of quick footsteps in the quiet street. Someone stopped at the gate, and the latch rattled as someone tried to open it. Mavra Kuzminichna went to the gate. "'What do you want?' "'The Count, Count Ilya Andreevich Rostov.' "'And who are you?' "'An officer. I have to see him,' came the reply in a pleasant, well-bred Russian voice. Mavra Kuzminichna opened the gate, and an officer of eighteen, with the round face of a Rostov, entered the yard. "'They have gone away, sir. Went away yesterday at vesper-time,' said Mavra Kuzminichna cordially. The young officer, standing in the gateway, as if hesitating whether to enter or not, clicked his tongue. "'Ah! How annoying!' he muttered. "'I should have come yesterday. Ah! What a pity!' Meanwhile, Mavra Kuzminichna was attentively and sympathetically examining the familiar Rostov features of the young man's face, his tattered coat and trodden-down boots. "'What did you want to see the Count for?' she asked. "'Oh, well, it can't be helped,' said he in a tone of vexation, and placed his hand on the gate as if to leave. He again paused in indecision. "'You see,' he suddenly said, I am a kinsman of the Count's, and he has been very kind to me. As you see," he glanced with an amused air and good-natured smile at his coat and boots, "'my things are worn out, and I have no money. So I was going to ask the Count.' 
Mavrakuzmanichna did not let him finish. "'Just a minute, sir, one little moment,' said she. And as soon as the officer let go of the gate-handle, she turned and, hurrying away on her old legs, went through the backyard to the servants' quarters. While Mavra Kuzminichna was running to her room, the officer walked about the yard, gazing at his worn-out boots with lowered head and a faint smile on his lips. "'What a pity I've missed, uncle! What a nice old woman! Where has she run off to? And how am I to find the nearest way to overtake my regiment, which must by now be getting near the Rogoski gate?' thought he. Just then Mavra Kuzminichna appeared from behind the corner of the house, with a frightened yet resolute look, carrying a rolled-up check kerchief in her hand. While still a few steps from the officer, she unfolded the kerchief and took out of it a white twenty-five-rouble assignat and hastily handed it to him. If His Excellency had been at home, as a kinsman he would, of course, but as it is... Mavra Kuzminichna grew abashed and confused. The officer did not decline, but took the note quietly and thanked her. "'If the Count had been at home,' Mavra Kuzminichna went on apologetically. "'Christ be with you, sir. May God preserve you,' said she, bowing as she saw him out. Swaying his head and smiling, as if amused at himself, the officer ran almost at a trot through the deserted streets toward the Auza Bridge to overtake his regiment. But Mavra Kuzminichna stood at the closed gate for some time with moist eyes, pensively swaying her head and feeling an unexpected flow of motherly tenderness and pity for the unknown young officer. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Two. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Three of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 11, Chapter 23 From an unfinished house on the Varvarka, the ground floor of which was a dram-shop, came drunken shouts and songs. On benches round the tables in a dirty little room sat some ten factory hands. Tipsy and perspiring, with dim eyes and wide-open mouths, they were all laboriously singing some song or other. They were singing discordantly, arduously, and with great effort, evidently not because they wished to sing, but because they wanted to show they were drunk and on a spree. One, a tall, fair-haired lad in a clean blue coat, was standing over the others. His face with its fine straight nose would have been handsome had it not been for his thin, compressed, twitching lips and dull, gloomy, fixed eyes. Evidently possessed by some idea, he stood over those who were singing, and solemnly and jerkily flourished above their heads his white arm with the sleeve turned up to the elbow, trying unnaturally to spread out his dirty fingers. The sleeve of his coat kept slipping down, and he always carefully rolled it up again with his left hand, as if it were most important that the sinewy white arm he was flourishing should be bare. In the midst of the song cries were heard and fighting and blows in the passage and porch. The tall lad waved his arm. "'Stop it!' he exclaimed peremptorily. "'There's a fight, lads!' And still rolling up his sleeve he went out to the porch. The factory hands followed him. These men, who under the leadership of the tall lad were drinking in the dram-shop that morning, 
had brought the publican some skins from the factory, and for this had had drink served them. The blacksmiths from a neighboring smithy, hearing the sounds of revelry in the tavern and supposing it to have been broken into, wished to force their way in too, and a fight in the porch had resulted. The publican was fighting one of the smiths at the door, and when the workman came out the smith, wrenching himself free from the tavern-keeper, fell face downward on the pavement. Another smith tried to enter the doorway, pressing against the publican with his chest. The lad with the turned-up sleeve gave the smith a blow in the face and cried wildly, "'They're fighting us, lads!' At that moment the first smith got up, and scratching his bruised face to make it bleed, shouted in a tearful voice, "'Police! Murder! They've killed a man, lads!' "'Oh, gracious me! A man beaten to death! Killed!' screamed a woman coming out of a gate close by. A crowd gathered round the blood-stained smith. "'Haven't you robbed people enough, taking their last shirts?' said a voice addressing the publican. "'What have you killed a man for, you thief?' The tall lad, standing in the porch, turned his bleared eyes from the publican to the smith and back again, as if considering whom he ought to fight now. "'Murderer!' he shouted suddenly to the publican. "'Bind him, lads!' "'I dare say you would like to bind me!' shouted the publican, pushing away the men advancing on him, and snatching his cap from his head, he flung it on the ground. As if this action had some mysterious and menacing significance, the workmen surrounding the publican paused in indecision. "'I know the law very well, mates. I'll take the matter to the captain of the police. You think I won't get to him?' "'Robbery is not permitted to anybody nowadays,' shouted the publican, picking up his cap. "'Come along, then! Come along, then!' the publican and the tall young fellow repeated one after the other, and they moved up the street together. The blood-stained smith went beside them. The factory hands and others followed behind, talking and shouting. At the corner of the Moroseca, opposite a large house with closed shutters and bearing a bootmaker's signboard, stood a score of thin, worn-out, gloomy-faced bootmakers, wearing overalls and long tattered coats. "'He should pay folks off properly,' a thin working man with frowning brows and a straggly beard was saying. "'But he sucked our blood, and now he thinks he's quit of us. He's been misleading us all the week, and now that he's brought us to this pass he's made off.' On seeing the crowd and the blood-stained man, the workmen ceased speaking, and with eager curiosity all the bootmakers joined the moving crowd. "'Where are all the folks going? Why, to the police, of course.' "'I say, is it true that we have been beaten? And what do you think? Look what folks are saying!' Questions and answers were heard. The publican, taking advantage of the increased crowd, dropped behind and returned to his tavern. The tall youth, not noticing the disappearance of his foe, waved his bare arm and went on talking incessantly, attracting general attention to himself. It was round him that the people chiefly crowded, expecting answers from him to the questions that occupied all their minds. "'He must keep order, keep the law. That's what the government is there for. Am I not right, good Christians?' said the tall youth with a scarcely perceptible smile. He thinks there's no government. How can one do without government? Or else there would be plenty who'd rob us." "'Why talk nonsense?' rejoined voices in the crowd. "'Will they give up Moscow like this? 
They told you that for fun, and you believed it. Aren't there plenty of troops on the march? Let him in, indeed. That's what the government is for. You better listen to what people are saying," said some of the mob, pointing to the tall youth. By the wall of Chinatown a smaller group of people were gathered round a man in a frieze coat who held a paper in his hand. "'An ukase! They are reading an ukase! Reading an ukase!' cried voices in the crowd, and the people rushed toward the reader. The man in the frieze coat was reading the broadsheet of August 31st. When the crowd collected round him he seemed confused, but at the demand of the tall lad who had pushed his way up to him, he began in a rather tremulous voice to read the sheet from the beginning. "'Early to-morrow I shall go to his Sirin Highness,' he read. "'Sirin Highness,' said the tall fellow with a triumphant smile on his lips and a frown on his brow, "'to consult with him to act, and to aid the army to exterminate these scoundrels. We, too, will take part—' The reader went on, and then paused. "'Do you see?' shouted the youth victoriously. "'He is going to clear up the whole affair for you.' "'In destroying them, and will send these visitors to the devil. I will come back to dinner, and will set to work. We will do, completely do, and undo these scoundrels.' The last words were read out in the midst of complete silence. The tall lad hung his head gloomily. It was evident that no one had understood the last part. In particular, the words, I will come back to dinner, evidently displeased both reader and audience. The people's minds were tuned to a high pitch, and this was too simple and needlessly comprehensible. It was what any one of them might have said, and therefore was what a new case emanating from the highest authority should not say. They all stood despondent and silent. The tall youth moved his lips and swayed from side to side. "'We should ask him. That's he himself?' "'Yes, ask him indeed. Why not? We'll explain,' voices in the rear of the crowd were suddenly heard saying, and the general attention turned to the police superintendent's trap which drove into the square attended by two mounted dragoons. The superintendent of police, who had gone that morning by Count Rostopchin's orders to burn the barges and had in connection with that matter acquired a large sum of money which was at that moment in his pocket, on seeing a crowd bearing down upon him told his coachman to stop. "'What people are these?' he shouted to the men, who were moving singly and timidly in the direction of his trap. "'What people are these?' he shouted again, receiving no answer. "'Your Honor,' replied the shopman in the frieze-coat. "'Your Honor, in accord with the proclamation of His Highest Excellency the Count, they desire to serve, not sparing their lives. And it is not any kind of riot. But as His Highest Excellency said, the Count has not left. He is here, and an order will be issued concerning you,' said the superintendent of police. "'Go on,' he ordered his coachman. The crowd halted pressing around those who had heard what the superintendent had said, and looking up at the departing trap. The superintendent of police turned round at that moment with a scared look, said something to his coachman, and his horses increased their speed. "'It's a fraud, lads! Lead the way to him himself!' shouted the tall youth. "'Don't let him go, lads! Let him answer us! Cape him!' shouted different people, and the people dashed in pursuit of the trap. 
Following the superintendent of police and talking loudly, the crowd went in the direction of the Lubyanka Street. "'There, now! The gentry and merchants have gone away and left us to perish. Do they think we're dogs?' Voices in the crowd were heard saying more and more frequently. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Three. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Four, of War and Peace, Volume Three, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven. Chapter Twenty Four. On the evening of the first of September, after his interview with Kutuzov, Count Rostopchin had returned to Moscow mortified and offended, because he had not been invited to attend the Council of War, and because Kutuzov had paid no attention to his offer to take part in the defense of the city. Amazed also at the novel outlook revealed to him at the camp, which treated the tranquillity of the capital and its patriotic fervor as not merely secondary, but quite irrelevant and unimportant matters. Distressed, offended, and surprised by all this, Rostopchin had returned to Moscow. After supper he lay down on a sofa without undressing, and was awakened soon after midnight by a courier bringing him a letter from Kutuzov. This letter requested the Count to send police officers to guide the troops through the town, as the army was retreating to the Ryazan road beyond Moscow. This was not news to Rostopchin. He had known that Moscow would be abandoned, not merely since his interview the previous day with Kutuzov on the Poklani Hill, but ever since the Battle of Borodino, for all the generals who came to Moscow after that battle had said unanimously that it was impossible to fight another battle, and since then the government property had been removed every night and half the inhabitants had left the city with Rostopchin's own permission. Yet all the same, this information astonished and irritated the Count, coming as it did in the form of a simple note with an order from Kutuzov, and received at night breaking in on his beauty sleep. When later on in his memoirs Count Rostopchin explained his actions at this time, he repeatedly says that he was then actuated by two important considerations to maintain tranquillity in Moscow, and expedite the departure of the inhabitants. If one accepts this twofold aim, all Rostopchin's actions appear irreproachable. Why were the holy relics, the arms, ammunition, gunpowder, and stores of corn not removed? Why were thousands of inhabitants deceived into believing that Moscow would not be given up, and thereby ruined? To preserve the tranquillity of the city, explains Count Rostopchin. Why were bundles of useless papers from the government offices, and Lepich's balloon and other articles removed? To leave the town empty, explains Count Rostopchin. One need only admit that public tranquillity is in danger, and any action finds a justification. All the horrors of the reign of terror were based only on solicitude for public tranquillity. On what, then, was Count Rostopchin's fear for the tranquillity of Moscow based in 1812? What reason was there for assuming any probability of an uprising in the city? The inhabitants were leaving it, and the retreating troops were filling it. Why should that cause the masses to riot? Neither in Moscow nor anywhere in Russia did anything resembling an insurrection ever occur when the enemy entered a town. More than ten thousand people were still in Moscow on the first and second of September, 
and except for a mob in the governor's courtyard, assembled there at his bidding, nothing happened. It is obvious that there would have been even less reason to expect a disturbance among the people if, after the Battle of Borodino, when the surrender of Moscow became certain, or at least probable, Rostopchin, instead of exciting the people by distributing arms and broadsheets, had taken steps to remove all the holy relics, the gunpowder, munitions, and money, and had told the population plainly that the town would be abandoned. Rostopchin, though he had patriotic sentiments, was a sanguine and impulsive man, who had always moved in the highest administrative circles and had no understanding at all of the people he supposed himself to be guiding. Ever since the enemy's entry into Smolensk, he had, in imagination, been playing the role of director of the popular feeling of the heart of Russia. Not only did it seem to him, as to all administrators, that he controlled the external actions of Moscow's inhabitants, but he also thought he controlled their mental attitude by means of his broadsheets and posters, written in a coarse tone which the people despise in their own class and do not understand from those in authority. Rostopchin was so pleased with the fine role of leader of popular feeling, and had grown so used to it, that the necessity of relinquishing that role and abandoning Moscow without any heroic display took him unawares, and he suddenly felt the ground slip away from under his feet, so that he positively did not know what to do. Though he knew it was coming, he did not till the last moment wholeheartedly believe that Moscow would be abandoned, and did not prepare for it the inhabitants left against his wishes. If the government officers were removed, this was only done on the demand of officials to whom the Count yielded reluctantly. He was absorbed in the role he had created for himself. As is often the case with those gifted with an ardent imagination, though he had long known that Moscow would be abandoned, he knew it only with his intellect. He did not believe it in his heart and did not adapt himself mentally to this new position of affairs. All his painstaking and energetic activity, in how far it was useful and had any effect on the people was another question, had been simply directed toward arousing in the masses his own feeling of patriotic hatred of the French. But when events assumed their true historical character, when expressing hatred for the French in words proved insufficient, when it was not even possible to express that hatred by fighting a battle, when self-confidence was of no avail in relation to the one question before Moscow, when the whole population streamed out of Moscow as one man, abandoning their belongings and proving by that negative action all the depth of their national feeling, then the role chosen by Rostopchin suddenly appeared senseless. He unexpectedly felt himself ridiculous, weak and alone, with no ground to stand on. When, awakened from his sleep, he received that cold, peremptory note from Kutuzov, he felt the more irritated, the more he felt himself to blame. All that he had been specially put in charge of, the state property which he should have removed, was still in Moscow, and it was no longer possible to take the whole of it away. "'Who is to blame for it? Who has let things come to such a pass?' he ruminated. "'Not I, of course.' I had everything ready. I had Moscow firmly in hand. And this is what they have let it come to. Villains, traitors, he thought, without clearly defining who the villains and traitors were, but feeling it necessary to hate those traitors, whoever they might be, 
who were to blame for the false and ridiculous position in which he found himself. All that night Count Rostopchin issued orders, for which people came to him from all parts of Moscow. Those about him had never seen the Count so morose and irritable. "'Your Excellency, the Director of the Registrar's Department has sent for instructions. From the Consistory, from the Senate, from the University, from the Foundling Hospital, the Suffragan has sent, asking for information. What are your orders about the Fire Brigade? From the Governor of the Prison? From the Superintendent of the Lunatic Asylum? All night long such announcements were continually being received by the Count. To all these inquiries he gave brief and angry replies, indicating that orders from him were not now needed, that the whole affair, carefully prepared by him, had now been ruined by somebody, and that that somebody would have to bear the whole responsibility for all that might happen. "'Oh, tell that blockhead,' he said in reply to the question from the registrar's department, "'that he should remain to guard his documents. Now why are you asking silly questions about the fire brigade? They have horses. Let them be off to Vladimir, and not leave them to the French.' "'Your Excellency, the superintendent of the lunatic asylum has come. What are your commands?' My commands? Let them go away, that's all, and let the lunatics out into the town. When lunatics command our armies, God evidently means these other madmen to be free." In reply to an inquiry about the convicts and the prison, Count Rostopchin shouted angrily at the governor, "'Do you expect me to give you two battalions, which we have not got, for a convoy? Release them, that's all about it.' "'Your Excellency, there are some political prisoners. Meshkov, Vereshchagin. Vereshchagin? Hasn't he been hanged yet? shouted Rostopchin. Bring him to me. End of Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Four. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Five of War and Peace, Volume Three by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty Five. Toward nine o'clock in the morning, when the troops were already moving through Moscow, nobody came to the count any more for instructions. Those who were able to get away were going of their own accord. Those who remained behind decided for themselves what they must do. The Count ordered his carriage that he might drive to Sokolniki, and sat in his study with folded hands, morose, sallow, and taciturn. In quiet and untroubled times it seems to every administrator that it is only by his efforts that the whole population under his rule is kept going. And in this consciousness of being indispensable every administrator finds the chief reward of his labor and efforts. While the sea of history remains calm, the ruler-administrator in his frail bark, holding on with a boat-hook to the ship of the people and himself moving, naturally imagines that his efforts move the ship he is holding on to. But as soon as a storm arises and the sea begins to heave and the ship to move, such a delusion is no longer possible. The ship moves independently with its own enormous motion, the boat-hook no longer reaches the moving vessel, and suddenly the administrator, instead of appearing a ruler and a source of power, becomes an insignificant, useless, feeble man. 
Rostopchin felt this, and it was this which exasperated him. The superintendent of police, whom the crowd had stopped, went in to see him at the same time as an adjutant who informed the Count that the horses were harnessed. They were both pale, and the superintendent of police, after reporting that he had executed the instructions he had received, informed the Count that an immense crowd had collected in the courtyard and wished to see him. Without saying a word, Rostopchin rose and walked hastily to his light, luxurious drawing-room, went to the balcony door, took hold of the handle, let it go again, and went to the window from which he had a better view of the whole crowd. The tall lad was standing in front, flourishing his arm and saying something with a stern look. The blood-stained smith stood beside him with a gloomy face. A drone of voices was audible through the closed window. "'Is my carriage ready?' asked Rostopchin, stepping back from the window. "'It is, Your Excellency,' replied the adjutant. Rostopchin went again to the balcony door. "'But what do they want?' he asked of the superintendent of police. "'Your Excellency, they say they have got ready, according to your orders, to go against the French, and they shouted something about treachery. But it is a turbulent crowd, Your Excellency. I hardly managed to get away from it. Your Excellency, I ventured to suggest—' "'You may go.' I don't need you to tell me what to do!" exclaimed Rostopchin angrily. He stood by the balcony door looking at the crowd. "'This is what they have done with Russia! This is what they have done with me!' thought he, full of an irrepressible fury that welled up within him against the someone to whom what was happening might be attributed. As often happens with passionate people, he was mastered by anger but was still seeking an object on which to vent it. "'Here is that mob, the dregs of the people,' he thought as he gazed at the crowd. "'This rabble they have roused by their folly. They want a victim,' he thought, as he looked at the tall lad flourishing his arm. And this thought occurred to him just because he himself desired a victim, something on which to vent his rage. "'Is the carriage ready?' he asked again. Yes, Your Excellency. What are your orders about Vereshchagin? He is waiting at the porch," said the adjutant. Ah! exclaimed Rostopchin, as if struck by an unexpected recollection. And rapidly opening the door, he went resolutely out onto the balcony. The talking instantly ceased, hats and caps were doffed, and all eyes were raised to the Count. Good morning, lads, said the Count briskly and loudly. Thank you for coming. I'll come out to you in a moment, but we must first settle with the villain. We must punish the villain who has caused the ruin of Moscow. Wait for me." And the Count stepped as briskly back into the room and slammed the door behind him. A murmur of approbation and satisfaction ran through the crowd. "'He'll settle with all the villains, you'll see. And you said the French. He'll show you what the law is the mob were saying, as if reproving one another for their lack of confidence. A few minutes later an officer came hurriedly out of the front door, gave an order, and the dragoons formed up in line. The crowd moved eagerly from the balcony toward the porch. Rostopchin, coming out there with quick angry steps, looked hastily around as if seeking someone. "'Where is he?' he inquired and as he spoke he saw a young man coming round the corner of the house between two dragoons. 
He had a long thin neck, and his head, that had been half-shaved, was again covered by short hair. This young man was dressed in a threadbare blue-cloth coat lined with fox fur, that had once been smart, and dirty hempen convict trousers, over which were pulled his thin, dirty, trodden-down boots. On his thin, weak legs were heavy chains, which hampered his irresolute movements. Ah said Rostopchin, hurriedly turning away his eyes from the young man in the fur-lined coat, and pointing to the bottom step of the porch. "'Put him there!' The young man in his clattering chains stepped clumsily to the spot indicated, holding away with one finger the coat-collar which chafed his neck, turned his long neck twice this way and that, sighed and submissively folded before him his thin hands, unused to work. For several seconds, while the young man was taking his place on the step, the silence continued. Only among the back rows of the people, who were all pressing toward the one spot, could sighs, groans, and the shuffling of feet be heard. While waiting for the young man to take his place on the step, Rostopchin stood frowning and rubbing his face with his hand. "'Lads,' said he, with a metallic ring in his voice, this man, Verischagin, is the scoundrel by whose doing Moscow is perishing." The young man in the fur-lined coat, stooping a little, stood in a submissive attitude, his fingers clasped before him. His emaciated young face, disfigured by the half-shaven head, hung down hopelessly. At the Count's first words he raised it slowly and looked up at him, as if wishing to say something, or at least to meet his eye but Rostopchin did not look at him. A vein in the young man's long thin neck swelled like a cord and went blue behind the ear, and suddenly his face flushed. All eyes were fixed on him. He looked at the crowd, and rendered more hopeful by the expression he read on the faces there, he smiled sadly and timidly, and lowering his head shifted his feet on the step. "'He has betrayed his Tsar and his country.' He has gone over to Bonaparte. He alone of all the Russians has disgraced the Russian name. He has caused Moscow to perish," said Rostopchin in a sharp, even voice, but suddenly he glanced down at Verestchagin, who continued to stand in the same submissive attitude. As if inflamed by the sight, he raised his arm and addressed the people, almost shouting, "'Deal with him as you think fit. I hand him over to you.' The crowd remained silent and only pressed closer and closer to one another. To keep one another back, to breathe in that stifling atmosphere, to be unable to stir, and to await something unknown, uncomprehended, and terrible was becoming unbearable. Those standing in front, who had seen and heard what had taken place before them, all stood with wide open eyes and mouths, straining with all their strength, and held back the crowd that was pushing behind them. Beat him! Let the traitor perish and not disgrace the Russian name," shouted Rostopchin. "'Cut him down! I command it!' Hearing not so much the words as the angry tone of Rostopchin's voice, the crowd moaned and heaved forward, but again paused. "'Count!' exclaimed the timid yet theatrical voice of Verischagin in the midst of the momentary silence that ensued. "'Count! One God is above us both!' He lifted his head, and again the thick vein in his thin neck filled with blood, and the color rapidly came and went in his face. 
He did not finish what he wished to say. "'Cut him down! I command it!' shouted Rostopchin, suddenly growing pale like Verestchagin. "'Draw sabers!' cried the dragoon officer, drawing his own. Another still stronger wave flowed through the crowd, and reaching the front ranks carried it swaying to the very steps of the porch. The tall youth, with a stony look on his face and rigid and uplifted arm, stood beside Verestchagin. "'Saber him!' the dragoon officer almost whispered. And one of the soldiers, his face all at once distorted with fury, struck Verestchagin on the head with the blunt side of his saber. "'Ah!' cried Verestchagin in meek surprise, looking round with a frightened glance as if not understanding why this was done to him. A similar moan of surprise and horror ran through the crowd. "'Oh, Lord!' exclaimed a sorrowful voice. But after the exclamation of surprise that had escaped from Verestchagin, he uttered a plaintive cry of pain, and that cry was fatal. The barrier of human feeling, strained to the utmost, that had held the crowd in check, suddenly broke. The crime had begun and must now be completed. The plaintive moan of reproach was drowned by the threatening and angry roar of the crowd. Like the seventh and last wave that shatters a ship, that last irresistible wave burst from the rear and reached the front ranks, carrying them off their feet and engulfing them all. The dragoon was about to repeat his blow. Verestchagin, with a cry of horror, covered his head with his hands, rushed toward the crowd. The tall youth, against whom he stumbled, seized his thin neck with his hands and, yelling wildly, fell with him under the feet of the pressing, struggling crowd. Some beat and tore at Verestchagin, others at the tall youth. And the screams of those that were being trampled on, and of those who tried to rescue the tall lad, only increased the fury of the crowd. It was a long time before the dragoons could extricate the bleeding youth, beaten almost to death. And for a long time, despite the feverish haste with which the mob tried to end the work that had been begun, those who were hitting, throttling, and tearing at Verestchagin were unable to kill him for the crowd pressed from all sides, swaying as one mass with them in the center, and rendering it impossible for them either to kill him or let him go. "'Hit him with the axe, eh? Crushed? Traitor! He sold Christ! Still alive! Tenacious! Serves him right! Torture serves a thief right! Use the hatchet! What? Still alive?' Only when the victim ceased to struggle and his cries changed to a long-drawn, measured death-rattle did the crowd around his prostrate, bleeding corpse begin rapidly to change places. Each one came up, glanced at what had been done, and with horror, reproach, and astonishment pushed back again. "'Oh, Lord! The people are like wild beasts! How could he be alive?' voices in the crowd could be heard saying. "'Quite a young fellow, too!' Must have been a merchant's son. What men! And they say he's not the right one. How not the right one? Oh, Lord, and there's another has been beaten, too. They say he's nearly done for. Oh, the people! Aren't they afraid of sinning? said the same mob now, looking with pained distress at the dead body with its long, thin, half-severed neck and its livid face stained with blood and dust. 
a painstaking police officer, considering the presence of a corpse in His Excellency's courtyard unseemly, told the dragoons to take it away. Two dragoons took it by its distorted legs and dragged it along the ground. The gory, dust-stained, half-shaven head, with its long neck, trailed twisting along the ground. The crowd shrank back from it. At the moment when Verischagin fell and the crowd closed in with savage yells and swayed about him, Rostopchin suddenly turned pale, and instead of going to the back entrance where his carriage awaited him, went with hurried steps and bent head, not knowing where and why, along the passage leading to the rooms on the ground floor. The Count's face was white, and he could not control the feverish twitching of his lower jaw. "'This way, Your Excellency! Where are you going? This way, please!' said a trembling, frightened voice behind him. Count Rostopchin was unable to reply, and turning obediently, went in the direction indicated. At the back entrance stood his caleche. The distant roar of the yelling crowd was audible even there. He hastily took his seat, and told the coachman to drive him to his country house in Sokolniki. When they reached the Miasnitsky street and could no longer hear the shouts of the mob, the Count began to repent. He remembered with dissatisfaction the agitation and fear he had betrayed before his subordinates. "'The mob is terrible, disgusting,' he said to himself in French. "'They are like wolves whom nothing but flesh can appease.' "'Count, one god is above us both!' Verischagin's words suddenly recurred to him, and a disagreeable shiver ran down his back. But this was only a momentary feeling, and Count Rostopchin smiled disdainfully at himself. "'I had other duties,' thought he. "'The people had to be appeased. Many other victims have perished and are perishing for the public good.' And he began thinking of his social duties to his family and to the city entrusted to him, and of himself, not himself as Theodore Vasilievich Rostopchin. He fancied that Theodore Vasilievich Rostopchin was sacrificing himself for the public good, but himself as governor, the representative of authority and of the Tsar. Had I been simply Theodore Vasilievich, my course of action would have been quite different. But it was my duty to safeguard my life and dignity as commander-in-chief. Lightly swaying on the flexible springs of his carriage, and no longer hearing the terrible sounds of the crowd, Rostopchin grew physically calm, and, as always happens, as soon as he became physically tranquil, his mind devised reasons why he should be mentally tranquil too. The thought which tranquilized Rostopchin was not a new one. Since the world began, and men have killed one another, no one has ever committed such a crime against his fellow man without comforting himself with this same idea. This idea is le bien public the hypothetical welfare of other people. To a man not swayed by passion, that welfare is never certain, but he who commits such a crime always knows just where that welfare lies, and Rostopchin now knew it. Not only did his reason not reproach him for what he had done, but he even found cause for self-satisfaction in having so successfully contrived to avail himself of a convenient opportunity to punish a criminal and at the same time pacify the mob. Verischagin was tried and condemned to death, thought Rostopchin, though the Senate had only condemned Verischagin to hard labor. He was a traitor and a spy. I could not let him go unpunished, and so, 
I have killed two birds with one stone. To appease the mob I gave them a victim, and at the same time punished a miscreant." Having reached his country house and begun to give orders about domestic arrangements, the Count grew quite tranquil. Half an hour later he was driving with his fast horses across the Sokolniki field, no longer thinking of what had occurred but considering what was to come. He was driving to the Yauza Bridge, where he had heard that Kutuzov was. Count Rostopchin was mentally preparing the angry and stinging reproaches he meant to address to Kutuzov for his deception. He would make that foxy old courtier feel that the responsibility for all the calamities that would follow the abandonment of the city and the ruin of Russia, as Rostopchin regarded it, would fall upon his doting old head. Planning beforehand what he would say to Kutuzov, Rostopchin turned angrily in his kalesh and gazed sternly from side to side. The Sokolniki field was deserted. Only at the end of it, in front of the almshouse and the lunatic asylum, could be seen some people in white, and others like them walking singly across the field shouting and gesticulating. One of these was running to cross the path of Count Rostopchin's carriage, and the Count himself, his coachman, and his dragoons looked with vague horror and curiosity at these released lunatics, and especially at the one running toward them. Swaying from side to side on his long, thin legs in his fluttering dressing-gown, this lunatic was running impetuously, his gaze fixed on Rostopchin, shouting something in a hoarse voice and making signs for him to stop. The lunatic's solemn, gloomy face was thin and yellow, with its beard growing in uneven tufts. His black, agate pupils with saffron-yellow-whites moved restlessly near the lower eyelids. "'Stop! Pull up! I tell you!' he cried in a piercing voice, and again shouted something breathlessly with emphatic intonations and gestures. Coming abreast of the kalesh, he ran beside it. "'Thrice they have slain me! Thrice have I risen from the dead! They stoned me! Crucified me! I shall rise! Shall rise! Shall rise! They have torn my body! The kingdom of God will be overthrown! Thrice will I overthrow it, and thrice re-establish it!' he cried, raising his voice higher and higher. Count Rostopchin suddenly grew pale as he had done when the crowd closed in on Verestjagin. He turned away. "'Go! Fast! Faster!' he cried in a trembling voice to his coachman. The kalesh flew over the ground as fast as the horses could draw it. But for a long time Count Rostopchin still heard the insane, despairing screams growing fainter in the distance, while his eyes saw nothing but the astonished, frightened, blood-stained face of the traitor in the fur-lined coat. Recent as that mental picture was, Rostopchin already felt that it had cut deep into his heart and drawn blood. Even now he felt clearly that the gory trace of that recollection would not pass with time, but that the terrible memory would, on the contrary, dwell in his heart ever more cruelly and painfully to the end of his life. He seemed still to hear the sound of his own words, "'Cut him down! I command it!' Why did I utter those words? It was by some accident I said them. I need not have said them," he thought. And then nothing would have happened. He saw the frightened and then infuriated face of the dragoon who dealt the blow, the look of the silent, timid reproach that boy in the fur-lined coat had turned upon him. But I did not do it for my own sake, 
I was bound to act that way. The mob, the traitor, the public welfare, thought he. Troops were still crowding at the Yeuza Bridge. It was hot. Kutuzov, dejected and frowning, sat on a bench by the bridge, toying with his whip in the sand when a kalesh dashed up noisily. A man in a general's uniform with plumes in his hat went up to Kutuzov and said something in French. It was Count Rostopchin. He told Kutuzov that he had come because Moscow, the capital, was no more, and only the army remained. Things would have been different if your Serene Highness had not told me that you would not abandon Moscow without another battle. All this would not have happened," he said. Kutuzov looked at Rostopchin as if, not grasping what was said to him, he was trying to read something peculiar written at that moment on the face of the man addressing him. Rostopchin grew confused and became silent. Kutuzov slightly shook his head and not taking his penetrating gaze from Rostopchin's face, muttered softly, "'No, I shall not give up Moscow without a battle.'" Whether Kutuzov was thinking of something entirely different when he spoke those words, or uttered them purposely, knowing them to be meaningless, at any rate Rostopchin made no reply and hastily left him. And strange to say, the governor of Moscow, the proud Count Rostopchin, took up a Cossack whip and went to the bridge where he began with shouts to drive on the carts that blocked the way. End of Book 11, Chapter 25